Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM, let's create. The whole idea of being able to be in this business is to try to find freedom, you know, I still am seeking it with every circumstance. And I think as I've gotten older, sometimes the freedom has been more apparent to me that I have more freedom than I think I've had, you know. And I probably could have felt very free and bad dialogue and a little bit of charm if I had just given myself permission. That was Bill Pullman. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Bill Pullman was born in Ornell, New York, to James and Joanna. His father was a physician, his mother a nurse. Together, they set the stage for Bill to do whatever he wanted to do. Instead of leaning into the field of medicine, he chose acting, first at a couple of colleges in New York, and then eventually receiving a master's degree from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. But then the idea of actually acting started to dim, and instead, the idea of teaching acting took hold. I'm providing this context because we start this conversation with Bill at a very important moment in his life. He's a teacher in Montana and has a very stable, safe, comfortable job. He lives in an idyllic town with a partner that he loves. Things are going incredibly well almost too well. And the kicker, he's only 28. And so what you're about to hear is an abridged version of his life from 28 to right now. For those who need a brief refresher, you have seen Bill in such films as Spaceballs, While You Were Sleeping, Sleepless in Seattle, Independence Day, Lost Highway, Lake Placid, and most recently in the show The Sinner, currently streaming on Netflix. He's also great in a film called The Ballad of Lefty Brown, which came out a couple years ago. In it, he plays the title character. If you have followed Bill's career, you've seen him oscillate back and forth between a leading man and a supporting, almost character actor. I think all those terms are are often kind of irrelevant. Uh, What I see in Bill is someone who is able to fully embody other people. Regardless of the film or the performance, He's able to capture a whole life of someone within just a few scenes. And so, evidently, I've tried to do the same thing in this conversation, to capture vignettes 
that are representative of Pullman's life and work. I think it's safe to say that Bill has never done an interview like this one. I think it's safe to say that Bill has not done an interview of this kind, and those are always my favorite to do when I get to ask questions that perhaps he hasn't been asked before. Bill is currently in rehearsals in London for his new play starring opposite of Sally Field. It's called All My Sons, and uh, previews begin Saturday, April 13th. So let's get into it. I um, really love this episode, and if you have this channel, Bill has recently narrated a four-part series called Epic Yellowstone. It airs Sundays at 9 on the Smithsonian Channel, and it is really quite lovely. So, finally, here is the one and only Bill Pullman. Welcome to the show. Welcome to this house. You've been here now for almost 30 minutes. Yeah. You, you've really got acquainted more than any guests that's come on this podcast. Very few have stepped out on the terrace. <laughs> I got to see. How do you feel? The view. It's very good. It's a surprise that this is still Highland Park. You know, we're having kind of a development. I'm just looking at the the street and I can feel it's very... You want to move in over here? Well, I, I'm, gl- I'm glad I know you over here, Sam. I'll come visit you. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome to come anytime. Now I know how to get here. Doors open to you. Good. There are a whole bunch of places to start this conversation. And I've been trying to figure out all morning where the hell I want to start. And I think I know. Rather, I I know I know. You are 28 in 1981. At this point, you've been teaching in Montana. And you're with your girlfriend who will soon become your wife. I'm curious because in that moment at 28, you decide if I stay here any longer, I could fall to stagnation and I may, I may never leave. And so you and your partner at the time decide to go to New York and try the acting thing. And what I'm curious about is that drive. Cause you guys drive there. What is that drive like at 28 going there? Yeah, it's 28 seems late to be going and, uh, you know, <laughs> abandoning it. I think of it now. It didn't feel late then. It didn't feel late then. It was a time when I probably feeling you know, ready to handle whatever the world threw at me, and I was excited to upend the stability. And I think that is kind of an important ingredient to, to risk the chaos of leaving uh, this thing that I stumbled on, but having stumbled upon a teaching gig, you know, having been part of this theater company that was touring all around Montana, and Montana was, I'd been there a couple of summers doing these tours. I fell in love with the state, and I could feel that uh, I was made a lot of good friends that were part of that theater company, and I felt like this was a community of people that I respected, the other actors. I learned a lot uh, doing outdoor theater of how to control technique and things that have to happen when dogs are running around and airplanes are flying overhead and you're trying to do Moliere or Shakespeare comedies. and So there's a lot yet to be mined. And then I got a position to teach there and a one-year position and then, oh, maybe it'd be interesting to go for a permanent position just to see if I could get it. And then I got that to be an assistant professor and then they promoted me to co-chairman of the department I was kind of must have demonstrated something that they were impressed by. So I thought this was, you know, a lot of people fought hard to get a faculty position. Bozeman, Montana is a beautiful place. People took docs and salary just to be able to have the quality of life of living there. And that's what I was going to walk away from. You said no to all of it. Said no to all of it. Yeah. I had my truck paid for, had a mattress in the back that was taken from the scene department so that I could sleep (laughs) back there and just pared down. A friend had, uh, from friends had picked uh, yellow roses and taped the masking tape all to the dashboard and to the the roof of the cab. And uh, Tamara, who was girlfriend at the time, now my wife, she was interested. She had... uh, 
finished school later. We had met in college in Massachusetts and kept up a long-distance relationship, but she had come out there for half a year, had been in Montana. She was a dancer, and knew that she probably could move too, and uh, so she was up for it, and so we got into this truck that smelled like roses and drove cross-country. What's going through your heads as you're driving cross-country? I had a terrible hangover because I had gotten these watermelons for the party the night before and injected it with vodka, and it was like one of those things where the sugars of the watermelon and the vodka, I'd never done it before. Everything cooked up a little bit more than I was expecting, and everybody partied a little harder, and we were pretty hungover as we got in the truck, and I thought, oh, I've just got to keep alive and driving, and so, yeah. I like that I came in hot with a sort of thing that I thought was important, and your response is, well, we were hungover. <laughs> it's terrible. Terrible thing to admit. But, you know, I think it was uh, some of it was that uh, we were leaving and, uh, you know, to drink the last drop of friendship with these people. Didn't know when I'd get to see them again. Didn't know if I'd return to Montana. But I had sent pictures to my brother who was in medical school in Nebraska. Or he'd done his residency in Nebraska. And he had been recruited all over the country, and he picked Butte, Montana, and I think largely from pictures I sent him, some bird hunting up in the mountains and things, and he uh, ended up coming that fall. Like, just, I missed him just by a couple of months, and he Mm -hmm. started his practice in Butte, and then about 10 years later, I would come back to Montana all during that time to have, we did, we were close, and so i bring my family up there and we'd you know stay with him and stuff and then he bought a ranch and then he said you know we're gonna get uh, some cows and you i i got a permit to get 20 cows to graze up in the mountains 22 cows you buy 11 i bought 11 we'll have a herd so we started that in 92 oh we're skipping ahead here well yeah i, <laughs> I, I mean I, I i was thinking about why i thought i was done with montana but i still had my brother all cooking up. up. Yeah, he mm. was cooking up, though. And then I did go back summers to to direct the plays mm. for a couple summers. So when you're in New York, early 80s, you're 28, soon to be 30. Are you thinking about the career of acting? Are you, are you worried about making a living? Because I know you come from a family of medicine, which is perhaps a little more stable of a career than acting were you thinking about that idea of stability you know at that point people were talking about the five-year plan i wonder if people still do that you know they have to tell their parents yeah they do oh do they yeah yeah that uh 28 nowadays if somebody comes and says i want to start in at 28 i don't know people say you should have been here 10 years ago or something you know especially in la but i didn't know that and uh it was all a big adventure, but I w- had been really directing and things like that. So I had, but I had to bury all that because it was actually threatening. I realized if I was going to act and audition, it was a chance to kind of get back to something that I had liked a lot and put off while I was teaching and directing and everything. So I never told anybody that I had been a teacher or that I'd been directing or anything. You know, just kind of go down to being a buck private. You didn't want to appear overqualified. Yes. I think it was threatening to directors. Like, oh, you directed? I don't know if I need you as an actor. Mm. So at that stage of the game, just scratching, you know, trying to get some toehold on the slippery slope. Are you and your partner making ends meet? Yeah, we took jobs, survival jobs in New York. You know, we were doing uh, things like polling for New York Times at night. You know, they'd have these surveys and you have to call people up. And try to get them to stay on the phone long enough to answer questions about different topics. <laughs> it's a terrible job. And then I worked. I worked in a uh, their equity had a board that had people that were willing to offer jobs that were friendly to actors. So they you could work around some hours. They would be a little bit more flexible than normal. And mine was a. I ended up in a wine store. First, I was a banker. I was like a new accounts officer at a bank, and then I went to a wine store where I sold wine. I realized that was a big another hoax because I couldn't smell. I lost my sense of smell when I was 21, and so 
wine and describing wine to people was, and so I just have to learn what everybody said a wine tasted like and try to sell wine with memory. Probably not the right job for you. I really wasn't suited to it. I got out of it. And then I loved that I ended up making Bottle Shock, this movie about wine, and I'd be smelling it as I'm, you know, spinning it around in the glass. And, uh, but So in 1985, 84, you guys come out to Los Angeles, correct? Yeah. You had some success in New York, but it was limited. I think it was mostly theater. Theater can be successful, Sam. That's very telling. Very telling. <laughs> You know, everything I say is telling. Well, you know what? To, to be fair, everything one says is telling. Yeah, yeah. I'm not downplaying theater. No. And I had. All, all I'm saying is if it was so wonderfully successful, the chances that you leave in 85 seem very little to me. Well, um, that is telling. A leave is telling. What does it tell you that I came to LA to do a play? I know that. But what does it tell you? It tells you that... I didn't have much of a future. I was coming here to do theater. No, it doesn't tell me that at all. No, it doesn't tell me that at all. How about how about you... We stop going over what a maybe I'm saying or maybe what I'm, you know, what X tells X about you and you just tell me about you. Well, I'm in your house, so <laughs> I'm your guest, so I get to tell you what I want to talk about. So, <laughs> fuck, no. <laughs> <laughs> I've never done an interview in someone's house, in a bedroom that's the guest bedroom, with art that you didn't choose. It's really, I'm kind of interested in all of this, and yet there's guitars. Well, I chose some of it. Did you choose some of it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I did. Okay. Choose that. Choose that. That's good. Yeah, that's yeah. fine. Piecing it together. Yeah, I see the that. Fragoso Rancho. I, I see that you're really, the whole environment is taking you in a little bit. I have been curious. I got here early. That's the danger of getting your guests There's here There's no problem early, about that. I, I have something for you, though, on this. Okay. So when you come to L.A. and you're doing theater, I know you have said in the past that film and TV weren't exactly on your mind. But I'm, I'm wondering, at that age, you're 32, 33 now. Mm-hmm. And perhaps it's always been true, but are you a naturally curious person? I think I was looking for adventure. I was very curious about what Los Angeles would bring. You know, I was came to do a play, and then I had I'd actually had the best success I'd had in New York was to be in this production, a first revival of Sam Shepard's Curse of the Starving Class with Kathy Baker, played my mother. And we did it in a very small theater, 33-seat theaters to start, and then it went to a 99-seat theater. That was the first time I was reviewed by the New York Times and got a good review and bumped up my agent up to William Morris Agency at the time. They had a branch in L.A. I knew that if I went to do the play, I could do some auditions and uh, see what happened. And, And then when I started to go to live out here. I thought that I would be out here to do a little gold digging and try to get out of debt with something, you know, some TV guest spot or something. Mm -hmm. And then I'd go back to New York and continue being in the theater. It was only uh, after I got this first job of Ruthless People and then it was kind of fairly quickly I got into Spaceballs because Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft came to see me in a play down at, I was doing a second play at the theater center by that time. Do you remember that night when they came? Yeah, it was a big deal for everybody, you know, in the theater because it was a new theater. The, the complex had just opened Los Angeles Theater Center and it was four theaters and but uh, the people that were coming were film people and uh, was kind of amazed that uh, they were there and that they wanted to talk to me afterwards. Were you nervous? I I remember wondering whether they liked the experience. I was nervous about whether the play was good enough because it was a strange play. It was uh, De Gelderode, who was this uh, kind of abstract Belgian person, a passion play called Barabbas. But they liked it, and Anne was very gracious, and Mel was very to the point. And then it was kind of a miracle that he cast me out of that. And the only other time I think I've ever been cast from a play was The Sinner, because mm. uh, Derek Simons, who, who's, who did the showrunner, he had seen The Goat on Broadway. Do you really think it was a miracle? 
I think there are such different forms, and sometimes people who go to see theater don't translate that as, you know, the acting that they see in theater is what they want in TV or film. I, and I understand that entirely, you know. I think the realities are so different. It takes a certain sensibility to be able to perceive why a person working well in a theater could work in movies and things. Mm, but I mean more, do you feel that you believe in serendipity? Or, or, or fate or anything like that? Well, I'm starting to more and more as I, you know, think back about that there is something about doing what you really love doing and taking the risks that you do to try to challenge yourself to achieve something is ends up, even if it can feel like it's not important to the world at the time, is something that does lead you in a fate to other things. And at that time, to do to do the goat on Broadway, which I hadn't done a play for fifteen years or something, and to drop all that and go to do this play called The Goat by Edward Albee in ninety, like two thousand one, two thousand two, that was a choice to step away. I remember telling people what the play was about out here. That the people at 20th Century Fox where I was at a party and saying I'm going to go into Broadway and do a play. Oh great, that people love to do the theater. It's a goat. It's a goat. It's about a guy who falls in love with a goat and they well, don't do that, Pullman. <laughs> <laughs> so Bill, I, Bill, we need to back you up now. Yeah, yeah. That's We don't know about that play. That's not going to be the ticket. But I think that's, you know, you kind of shape a fate but you don't realize it. How do you feel about talking about the past? Well, uh, I'm always intrigued that uh, you get questions that you've never been asked before, such as Sam Fergoso saying, the year is 1981 and you're in your truck. And already I'm going, oh, he's done some research and <laughs> no one's ever asked me about the truck or what 81 was like or anything. So Great. Yeah. Well, let's keep going on that track. Um, 1990, I will say... We were going through your resume last night. The 90s are really, you have sort of film after film that I'm like, oh my God, how the hell did that happen? Oh, that happened. At the time, you guys are living here now for almost five, six years. Do you feel like things are going your way in, in terms of acting and making a career out of this as a business? Yeah, it was, did seem like Los Angeles was going to be the city I was living in, and we already had three kids by 93. We had a third. But I think at that point, you know, I thought, boy, I'm doing, it seems like I'm working a lot, and uh, people in my hometown in western New York State don't seem to realize it. I, I think the, uh, the kind of like um, quick response that you're in the movie i mean because no one from my small town in western new york state had been in you movies. wanted people from ornell to really i actually was kind of glad that i could stay anonymous and i was amazed at how long i went before there was a critical mass of material out there that suddenly people started to say oh you actually are making a living at it why anonymous well i just always maybe uh had uh feeling that I am most comfortable moving without a lot of attention on myself. I used to drive a 1972 Plymouth Valiant for a long time because <laughs> I thought it was a very much like a squad car. And, uh, you know, it's just not attractive and uh, are not flashy and something that people wouldn't stop their eye. You knew that about yourself when you were in your 30s, that you didn't want the sort of fame of it all, that I'm sure you had friends and colleagues that were looking for that and searching for that. Yeah, yeah. I know that there were a lot of people who had, uh, you know, really looking to make the right choices, and I was still picking things by adventure, you know, quota. What's going to be fun? Yeah, what's going to be fun? And it was all fun. You know, it was like you had Mel Brooks and riding around with little people on dune buggies, shooting scenes out in the desert and space balls. And then the third movie was in Haiti in the Dominican Republic, mm. the curse of the um, serpent and the rainbow. And we had, you know, we lived in, we had a, 
a riot with two thousand extras <clears throat> in Port-au-Prince. That was we almost uh, didn't adventurous. Make it, out of it. it was adventurous. Every single one of them. Oh, yeah. There's a movie that happens in 1995. It's called While You Were Sleeping. You haven't met Jack yet. It's funny. My brother never mentioned you. Which one of the three studios was Peter's favorite? Curly. Curly. Ha! He's everybody's favorite. Fact is, you're not really Peter's type. Whose type am I? I like blondes. You like brunettes. What can I say, Peter? I was never envious of anything that you had until now. To me, it seems like the kind of leading man role, leading role, that turns a career in a certain direction. And I don't know exactly what that direction is, but I think I think you may know what I'm talking about. Um, it seems like that's a role to do X kind of movie, to be an X kind of star and leading man, quote-unquote. And I'm interested, what do you make of that film and that experience and, and what that, that piece meant to you at the time? Well, there was a certain, you know, with While You're Sleeping, there was a certain trajectory that it started to be talked about from my other movies where, like, uh, just before I had done Summersby and Malice. And somewhere, the little zeitgeist of people in the press reading other people in the press or something, they suddenly said... Pullman is the guy who doesn't get the girl and also Sleepless in Seattle. Right. And then I was not aware of Ralph Bellamy because uh, I wasn't, I'm not a really great student of film like you are. I had to look it up and look to, and Ralph Bellamy was a guy that somehow his whole career gets reduced to being the guy that didn't get the girl. Uh-huh. And so I thought, that, how did this happen? Summersby, I play a very interesting character who's got a limp with Jodie Foster. He's got a passion for her, but it's distorted, and he's got a weird evangelical side. And yeah. Maybe you didn't get the girl, but you did get the goat in that play. I did get the, <laughs> I did get the goat, in, but that was years later, Sam. This is at that point, it was, you know, something that... And like if you it, set up that joke, I can't not do it. That's, you know, that's how it goes around here. It's good to remember there, the animals. Um, <laughs> it's good to remember the animals. Is that the sentence? <laughs> You've been very good with your dog, and now I'm understanding. Uh, it comes from a sensibility. Let's remember the animals. Let's remember them. Yep. Delete his dead asleep right there. Yes, but she knows you're going to be walking her later in the. the be park. careful with that word. She gets really excited with that word. Can't you can't say that. See one eye coming open. Yeah, she's going to freak out. Um, but let's go back. So so stay in it. Ralph so Bellamy. then all of a sudden, yeah, I'm thinking I got to get out of this. And then came while you're sleeping, and there's the guy that got the girl. And I thought, this is a relief. The movie was a great experience making it. It was kind of, I think of it as like a Cinderella story because it was not made for a lot of money. There was not a lot of expectation that it was going to be a big success or anything, that it was felt like this is a gentle little comedy. It had a script that that could have been very television-y. There was, you know, John Turtletop was directing it, and he was very aware he didn't want to make something that was sitcom-y or something like that. And But it had this really good conceit that the brother's in a coma and the girl is there and they're in the hospital room and they have attraction and complications ensue. And so we were in Chicago and we got out there and John was really working feverishly on the script and we would kind of have a lot of changes in the last minute. And I remember one scene, and this is only because you're from Chicago and you probably have had those moments where you're not dressed appropriately and we had established <laughs> all the spring clothing and suddenly we're walking along down one of the, alongside the canal there. Uh, and it's a cavern, it's a canyon of yes. concrete and the wind is screaming through there. And uh, we're doing dialogue that we just got in the makeup trailer, uh, Walk and Talk, Sandra and I. And I got colder than I had ever been in Montana. <laughs> was t- piercing, and my thighs felt like they get thawed for three days. It was fierce. But that m- movie was ended up then having a good success. And and then uh, I think Independence came, Day came after that. And yeah, right. 
I and I did receive offers that I did turn down that might have been more predictably how to build off of those things, but to me they felt repetitive to what I had done. Repetitive and, how? Well, it was the, right after Independence Day, where other disaster movies about volcanoes and things like that, and I, I think I was really. You had your fill. I had my fill, and I didn't want to give any more speeches of, you know, now motivational speeches, and they all seemed to have, like, in the two-thirds of the way through, there was a chance to redo that in some uh-huh. way, or maybe I was me just being paranoid that I, it smelled like the same thing, and mm. I just, so I uh, deflected it, it, but it's the same willfulness, I guess, that allowed me to drive in 81 to New York not having anything, and not feeling like I needed to to accommodate anybody else's idea of what I should be doing with my time. Well, other people's idea was, like you quoted, the piece where Pullman doesn't get the girl. But I think something that's more important than like Pullman doesn't get the girl, it's 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 a it's a comment on the career trajectory and the sort of idea of being a leading man. Is that something you wanted? Did you want to be a leading man? I found sometimes those are the most boring parts, you know, especially if you're not at the top tier of the scripts and you're getting something that's a little generic. It, I didn't know how I would do a good job. I felt like there are other people that maybe would do a better job at some of those things, the, how to be kind of a persona that is going to be charismatic, even though you're say, saying bad dialogue. I didn't know how to do that. Yeah. Know? Charisma with bad dialogue. Yeah. I, yeah. And there's some people that do it so well. Oh, my God. You know, it's just so many. So many. <laughs> God love them. They elevate that mediocrity to slight charm. <laughs> and they make the writing look good. And, you know, you're not even listening to the words. And you go, wow, they do it. How come I can't do it? But you didn't want it. I think I, yeah, it just didn't. Uh, and I, never really been motivated by money so why is that i think i always lived close to the ground you know it's always uh, had a little bit of uh, sense that this could all evaporate and i don't want to be beholden or i don't want to have to be bought i don't you know i don't want to be a bought person so what does that mean to be bought for you well, agreeing to do something that I don't want to do just because I've said yes to the money or something. Putting a pause on the conversation for a second. Next month, Talk Easy will celebrate its three-year anniversary. We have done 130 episodes as of today. That's a lot of podcast, and uh, especially because we remain uh, an independently produced and operated show. In plain terms... That means this is a show made possible week after week because of people who just love making it. No one has financially profited. We are not part of a larger media conglomerate. We are not backed by a benevolent benefactor. Although, if you're listening and could be that aforementioned benevolent benefactor, please do give me a call. And secondly, and perhaps most importantly, is that this show is free. Every episode, all 130 are free to download and listen to. And quite frankly, I'd like to keep it that way. And so, if Talk Easy has ever meant something to you, ever helped you understand some artist you love, or even something about yourself and your own creativity, please do consider donating to the cause. We're a tight-knit group of people, and to not get self-righteous about it, I believe what we do week after week should continue being done. So, if you can, any donation of any size really does help. If you can't financially support us, which I know uh, is hard for many people right now, even just sharing the show online and with friends, especially on social media, makes a huge difference to an independent program like ours. We've set up donation accounts on PayPal at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com, or if you prefer Venmo, you can find us at TalkEasyPod. To learn more about how and where you can help out, visit our website at www.talkeasypod/donate. I know that was a long ramble, and uh, I know these are hard times for many of us, so I really do appreciate 
any amount in which you can support this show. Truly, we couldn't do it without you. Now, back to Bill Pullman. This feeling of uh, the whole idea of being able to be in this business is to try to find freedom, you know. I still am seeking it with every circumstance, and I think as I've gotten older, sometimes the freedom has been more apparent to me that I have more freedom than I think I've had, you know, and mm. I probably could have felt very free and bad dialogue and a little bit of charm if I had just given myself permission to <laughs> feel free in it. But, uh, you know, like doing this play uh, that I'm going to start in London, you know, go next on Tuesday to start rehearsals on All My Sons to do it, the old Vic in London and haven't done theater in three years. And it's a, you know, realistic play written in 1947. What's the freedom in it? You know, where did, what, 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 what does this character have that's going to allow me to feel like I don't care whatever anybody has done with this part before? I'm going to wipe that all clear and I'm going to be free to do, to explore in any way that I can bring to do the best job possible and not denying the, the, the script, the dialogue or anything else, keeping inside the confines of that, but still see freedom. On the point of freedom in 97, you do two films with two, I would say geniuses. I don't like to use that word very often, but I think in this case it makes sense. One is lost highway with David Lynch. The other is End of Violence, The End of Violence, with uh, Vim Vendors. Tell me about both of those. Well, David was interested in finding an actor for this part, and uh, I had met his daughter, Jennifer. There was a period where she was going to do this film, Boxing Elena, and I was going to be in that at some point. And then they lost the financing, and by the time they got it back, I was doing something else. I couldn't do it. But she had recommended me to David to meet and think about. I, you know, was warned by my agent, you're going to read this script. It's not, nobody gets it. Nobody knows kind of what it's about or anything. And so don't let that discourage you. He's very, very important director. You know, they're like going through, fucking up on, uh, you know, why it's a great thing to be thinking about a David Lynch movie. But I read the script and I felt like I was reading family history or something like I your family history well or just loosely just that it was something so I felt like I understood everything about it that I didn't I didn't have the kinds of reactions that this was an incomprehensible script or this was the kind of script that I thought was closer to weird plays or something like that than I'd ever read in a movie before but I felt like I could get it and so much so that I had the chutzpah to say to David why can't I play both parts why can't I be Fred Madison and Balthazar Getty's part and I could do it with you know acting and he no Bill that's they're two different parts they're two different parts can you do an impression of them well, everybody does impressions of him, so I don't. And I, I remember when we were doing publicity for it, um, it, you know, you were side by side and you were in Europe or something, you know. In the States, everybody's question in the press was, what, can you just tell us what this play, what this movie is about? And yeah. it was very embarrassing for David and everything. It's got to be a horrifying question. It was see. horrifying. I was so, and he would, you know, find his own ways through it and I could he's very 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 compelling guy to be around and everything I was always interested in every way that he met it head on but in Europe they were all ridiculing me for being part of Independence Day but glad that I was in Lost Highway and I found him David talking easier to those journalists and somebody said why did you cast Bill and he said I look in Bill's eyes and I see someone who can get himself in a lot of trouble. (laughs) (laughs) I felt that uh, from the start that I, that I was, you know, maybe an alter ego for some part of him, you know, that I think he's cast his leads somewhat in with a vein of people that are a little like him, a little 
uh, outwardly seeming very pleasant Midwestern maybe, or but he has background in Montana too, but that could get themselves into a little bit of trouble. Mm. What did you think of him as a director, like uh, collaborating with him on set? Yeah, it was different than anything before or after. You know, I never have worked with anybody quite like him before. He comes out of an art world where the psychological motivation for things is not important at all. He's working from a landscape of dreams and logic that seems to come from another place than something that you talk about very empirically. He was aware that a lot of people were asking what the movie was about. And I remember him sitting down with Patricia Arquette and I in pre-production and saying, okay, I've got it. I'm going to read you a definition from the DSM, the uh, Diagnostic <laughs> Statistic Manual. And it's for a condition called psychogenic fugue. And he read this thing about this condition, psychogenic fugue, mm-hmm. and he said, at the end of it, he said, that's what this movie is about. And we never talked about it again. But it was really about being extremely compartmentalized. So basically... You know, it was some kind of really wonderful thing that he had come upon this diagnostic thing Mm -hmm. and that it felt like it answered everything. That's all he needed to know. But in directing, you know, there would be a lot of things in code that he would build meaning with you that may not have meaning to anyone listening to the conversation. For instance, that one of the big things in that movie is walking down a hallway. And this hallway was important to him and we talked about in pre-production we talked about he when he walked on the set of Fred Medicine House he goes this has been careful and with Patricia Norris who was the production designer Peter Deming who was the DP you know how we were going to shoot it all and everything was going to be up in the air he would say you know I think when you go down this hallway you walk you start walking and then at a certain point it becomes kabuki And Kabuki became a shorthand for this condition of Fred Madison where things went to another place. Did that sort of approach to filmmaking that he brings to the set, the specificity, but also what I think most people would call strangeness, Mm. that's really not a fair word for it, maybe eccentric, maybe uh, different, is probably the most accurate. Did that feel good to you as an actor in that sort of environment? I don't know if it was the freest that I've ever been. Right. Well, it started on freedom. It started started on freedom. And I don't think my satisfaction of being part of that movie was about freedom because in a way, there's a quality of delivery and everything that becomes very molded in how you're yawning a lot sam well no i I mean Uh, i'm I'm not yawning at you we should not be in your home i have and we should not be next to a bed i think these things are starting to influence you (laughs) you know what bill next time you come on the show we'll go to your house okay that that will be good i got a nice bedroom up there (laughs) see you replicate it all you'll be comfortable great but uh no, I think that, uh, you know, for, for, for me, there was a certain channeling of David that was important about that job. And I didn't feel like I was getting line deliveries so much, but I was kind of by osmotically almost getting something about delivery. Partly because he very, he's very compelling and charming as a person. Everybody who comes off of a movie like working with him is kind of infected by him in some way. Charming how? He would kind of narrate the day for people, which some directors don't don't talk at all. They let the ADs talk and everything. But he would be, you know, f- felt like it was his party or something because he would always say like something like, we're going to go again. We've had problems technical. And, you know, it's just <laughs> like... Everybody goes, this is so good to be on this movie. (laughs) We've had problems, technical. (laughs) A sense of irony, a little distance on the event, a little bit of way of capturing it. He's like sort of uh, omnipresent. Yeah. uh, Viewing from afar. 
dis- disengage from urgency, disengage from time. And mm. Deepak Nair, who is the producer, who's also still a great friend, and he was all about time and money, and as he should be, and David would just not seem to be impacted by it all. Right. Listening. I'm, sure, I'm sure that drove him crazy. Yeah, they wouldn't argue or anything. David's just calm pool of creative mass of thoughts and ideas and going ahead with that. So it was very infectious to feel that. If the sound of a burning cigarette would capture his, like there's that scene and then in the hotel room where Fred is smoking a cigarette. And that process of recording that burning saltpeter was so important to David. It just was like, this is what we're free to explore. And he had an excellent sound guy that uh, understood this is what we're doing, recording the burning of the cigarette. At the turn of the century, you know, the film comes out in 97, the century turns soon after. What did you want for yourself moving forward in the 2000s? Because you had, you had a pretty established career at that point. You had done all kinds of movies, big and small, strange and fairly conventional. What were you looking at in the years ahead? Well, I I knew that I wanted to direct something, and I had a production company at that time that was with in Castle Rock first, and then became independent. And the, then I directed the Virginian for TNT Western, and I was in it and directed it. That was something that was important to me because I had been a director in theater and was I liked the fact that it was a Western and that I could do that. And then I think I was ready. And uh, when the Broadway thing came up in 2001 to do a play, that's what I was focused on. Mm. The goat. The goat. You have a very serene and and calm temperament, mm. I will say. Your, your, your legs are crossed currently in your, what I believe to be APC genes. And for the most part, though, you have a very relaxed demeanor. Is that fair to say? It's true. I'm very comfortable. I was worried about which chair I was going to sit in, and you said, how about this one? And it's a good chair. So I give you options. <laughs> but I mean, as a person in the world, do you feel like you're fairly calm? It's good that you're reading calm because there's a little bit of urgency that's that is a, a little hamster wheel that's going on inside me. Partly because I wanted to be better prepared to go to London, and I had decided that I was going to try to have the whole script under my belt before I left. But I've been working on this movie in Ohio, and I've let other things here happen. So there is a little bit of like. I'm going to have to really cram this thing. And and so that's, if I'm calm and serene, it's good that I somehow know that I'm going to accomplish the thing I have to accomplish eventually. Would you say that that description of you has been true, you know, when you're in the 2000s continuing your work? Do you feel that was accurate? No. And uh, I'm in a kind of a lucky, fortunate moment to kind of get a sense back of myself because my son... One of my sons is an actor now, mm-hmm. and I'm watching how similar we are in certain ways, very different in other ways. But he is uh, watching how his own sense of the world, uh, what is chaotic about the world and what he can't control about the world and what he needs to present that he be able to push down so it doesn't overcome him, anxieties and any kind of anxiousness about being prepared and whatnot, and that he can still function in a highly pressured situation, even though he carries with him all of that stuff. And I'm realizing I had a lot more of that. And somehow time allows you and experiences allows you to sublimate it a little bit. But I think it's important at the beginning to have a, have a certain degree of that in order mm. to keep your butt, you know, keep, Moving. Moving, yeah. You felt you were anxious. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot in my system that I needed to have fine acting. There was a feeling like I could understand the world best when I was working on a play, you know, in college and things. When I first was trying it out and Mm. things, I found that living inside this bubble allowed me to go calm and that performing 
was the calmest that I ever was. Really? And it was a relief from life. It was a relief from the anxieties of life. Is it healthy to constantly have that relief? It takes a while to kick in and everything before you get all that. So it's, you know, it's not like it's just always there. And sometimes you end up with projects that you can't quite get ahead of and they spin you a little bit and you don't, you don't have that. But when does that happen? Oh, there's been some films that just seem like you're just three degrees off or something and you can't quite get in sync with the director or you aren't quite buying anything, you know, uh, that you're saying quite a hundred percent, you know, or you're trying to collaborate with somebody and you find yourself making adjustments that aren't natural or not appropriate. And there's something that's still gnawing you about having chosen to acquiesce to something. Hmm. So I have a fairly honest question to ask you, and you can decide how honest it is, because fairly honest means there's a dial there. This is becoming quite fun for me because you know you're doing sort of a checks and balance kind of thing <laughs> on this show, Bill. Where I say something, you check it. We have a nice ping pong. I should have you around more often. It'd really be fun. I love it here. I'm comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> you love it here. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> on this cul-de-sac. Um, <laughs> do you feel like the 2000s went how you wanted them to? In I, work? I I don't know if in work they did entirely. I think I, I imagined that I was going to direct again, and I couldn't quite get that going right. I was always diverted by other things. I did certain amounts of movies that didn't end up being as good as I wanted them to be. You know, I could read any script and really see its best potential and sometimes sign on to things that I think I could solve all these problems in the character. You felt like you could solve them. I felt I could solve it. From the center of it, I could really make a different product than what it ended up being. And I was feeling limitations of myself in some ways that I hadn't quite felt before. And What uh, kind of limitations? You know, being in circumstances I had no control over and finding... That I couldn't, mag- you know, use magic realism or something to transform. <laughs> it just wasn't always being in things that uh, that turned out. But you know, I, I was still enjoying myself and still uh, taking a lot of uh, things. And and then I I was trying things that I've never tried before. Tried to, you know, did this mini series of Torchwood, which was a very, you know, to me. That was a great thing, and it didn't get received the way that I thought it should have been. It's mm. a great guy, Russell T. Davies, who had reinvented Doctor Who, and this was our kind of spinoff from it. And I thought it was as science fiction. I was as good as I wanted it to be, and everything. And they just, and I thought it delivered as a ten episode thing, and it somehow didn't have that impact that I imagined it having. And then. I did some more plays, another Broadway play that I thought was very... It was successful enough, but it didn't go quite the way that I thought it would. But it was all good, adventurous uh, mm. probing, you know. You mentioned your son who's acting now. And uh, we've been talking about work pretty much throughout the whole conversation, but I'm, I'm fascinated. You got married in, what, 87? Is that yeah. right? Yeah. And you have three kids. What has that sort of long-standing marriage and then having a fairly traditional familial structure done for you and your work, done for you as a person in the world. Really now so enjoying all their sensibilities. The three kids are all in the arts. Our daughter is a musician and does a lot of things and different kinds of things with music. And I like her sensibility so much about what she finds in songs. And she has this uh, group that is a community-based group, and we've become a big part of our neighborhood. You know, I've done a lot of things that are uh, centered on other interests than film. We started this uh, Hollywood Orchard, which is a community initiative that gleans fruit from trees that's not being picked in the neighborhood mm. and then we have 
collaborate with chefs and have pop-up kitchens and uh, it's been going now for eight years we tomorrow and i were part of the beginning of it and we for three years dedicated a lot of time to that i think our kids growing up all have a sense of being part of a community in hollywood where we are with it's great to have a neighbors and neighborhood and our daughter Mesa, who's the musician, has a group called the Band of Singers that is inviting people of all abilities to come and make music together. And she does it in a way that's not, you can't call it a choir. Mm. You can't call them concerts because they're all story driven and they build out of this kind of. And I think that's all interesting. The middle son is a, makes puppets and masks. He's a craftsman and he has his own aesthetic. And I'm finding projects that I can. You work with him on. Uh, we're doing two theater things that are so we can collaborate on some things. Mm. And then the youngest son is an actor. He's got his own chops. He's got his own game, and but is very much, you know, this last movie I did in Ohio is the first time that I ever came to a city I'd never been in before, Cincinnati. I went on the set for the first time, and every. People, about five or six people came up and said, we've been wanting to meet you because we worked with your son last year. And that was such an amazing thing. They're dying to meet me because of Lewis. And Lewis was such a great influence on the set and good spirit. And Look at everything. that. Yeah. So, What have your kids taught you about being a man in the world? They have a lot of tolerance for me. <laughs> what are they tolerating? My manias, you know, the fact that I get so many balls in the air and that I'm restless and that I'm, you know, always adding too many ingredients to the to the dinner or something. <laughs> <laughs> right now we're engaged as a collective with my wife to make this. We found an old commercial building that's, uh, we're going to make we're, change, we're going to make into live work for artists, and they're going to all three live in the same complex. And this is a 1923 building, and so that all has is a bigger ball of wax than I think uh, yeah. we all got it. But it's a good project, and uh, so I think that they somehow are willing to go along on that, or they see the wisdom of it, and we all are going to do it together. So. Restless. Yeah, restless. You know what's not restless is that you've been married for 32 years. I want to know, we're two strangers, although less strangers now. How does that happen? How do you how do you keep something for 32 years? It's very fortunate because it, you know, I think that there's been a lot of reasons why I can see around me a lot of families disintegrate and implode and I I think for good reason. It's very hard to find a mate that goes that long, and I don't know if it's wisdom that makes you choose it. I think it's almost luck or something. I come from a family of seven, four divorced. So the fact that I'm one of the three that didn't, I don't know you know, it's <clears throat> what, what allowed that to happen, but it has meant that at this stage of the game, when the, we've got more f time with each other, that we're glad we hung on. It's like the really the best thing now is that she's slowed down. She's been a dancer and doing a lot of multi-generational dance things, so she went way outside the envelope of what dancers normally do and worked in a lot of different things and now is willing to kind of ease off on that and she travels with me and, you know, we have a lot more time together and we're doing a lot more things together if you can hang on till that part, that that's quite a good good thing. Mm. Has it been easy to hang on? Oh, there's thousands of things that you know can make it unsteady, and definitely um, restlessness is not useful in those things. But uh, it can also be incorporated in it, and you know you can you're always learning about yourself. You're trying to find out who you are and there can be some you know attempts to throw it all up or to there is an instinct to, to destroy things uh, you know destructiveness mm. to certain aspects of things it takes a lot of nurturing and 
willingness to to be self-effacing. You know, I don't, in times where it's not comfortable. So those are all things that are good. You know, for deepening a soul. You're uh, 59 now. Wouldn't that be nice? I'm 65. I did my math wrong. We'll do it again. Very nice, though. You're 59 going on 65. Right. We have to get going here, so I only have one question left for you. You've mentioned this sort of restlessness and mania a couple times. I've seen nothing of that in this conversation, but I'm sure it's there. I believe you. I believe you're not full of shit. (laughs) Has that been easier to manage the older you get? Or does it get exacerbated with age? I think it's easier to manage. Yeah. That there's, it's somehow you're, have uh, expended that level of energy. You got it out. Got it out. Good question. Short answer. I'm surprised by the shortness. (laughs) By the brevity. I'm still kind of reflecting on your ability to say, or, or you're full of shit. Because I think that is a good barometer to have. It's so hard to be authentic in the world. You know, I think there's a lot of ways in which we acquire these false personalities sometimes that we keep alive for a long time. And the ability to say, when is that full of shit? What I just did or way that I'm thinking is wrong. Mm. And to invite that kind of drop everything and go to zero for a second I don't feel offended that about that possibility, you know, when you say, or you're are full of shit, you know, because there is a level in which you're never certain how authentic you're being, you know, and honest you're being. Hmm. And uh, it's good to ask those questions. So I was ending the question so I could still think about that, <laughs> that aspect of it. Well, on that, do you think uh, you've been honest in this conversation? Think honest enough uh, that uh, for today, being here early and uh, <laughs> I get to see your home life, I feel like there was an invitation to to drop pretense by coming to your house. Yeah, right away the whole thing of getting lost, getting here—it's not GPS doesn't want to tell the world where you live. These complications have made it, uh, and to have your dog be part of your life, it's a good way to kind of like just take away the pretense. Well, I'm glad you uh, found your way here and that you came on this show, and it's been a true honor. It's good to be here, Sam. Bill Pullman, thank you so much. Thank you, Sam. Special thanks this week to Annick Moeller and the good people at WKPR. Bill Pullman is currently in rehearsals for his new play called All My Sons. In it, he stars opposite of Sally Field. Previews begin at the Old Vic on Saturday, April 13th. You can also currently stream Season 2 of The Center on Netflix. And finally, Bill has recently narrated a four-part series called Epic Yellowstone, now available on the Smithsonian Channel. To find out more about Bill, you can do so in our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. There you'll also find a back catalog of episodes we've done with many different actors like Vincent D'Onofrio, Viggo Mortensen, Alan Alda, Alan Arkin, Keith David, and many, many more. Our show is available on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And as always... Talk Easy is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, social media by Crystal Farmer, booking by Ian Chang, our intern is Elliot Weintraub, our music is by Dylan Peck, 
and the show is produced by Alyssa Greenberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.